before it gets really, really bad. So talk mm-hmm. with me a little bit more about how that works practically. Yeah. So most people have what we would call a circle of support, either family or friends that are there for you when you're going through something hard. Mm -hmm. So when we moved home from California, for example, we stayed with my parents for three months and Mm -hmm. then they held babysit our kids when we got our first jobs. And then all our friends came and helped us move into an apartment and like all of these things that we take for granted when we're in good, deep community. And even when we've struggled in the area of community, it's nothing compared to what I see some of these moms walk through where they're like... <laughs> the mom that we hosted for first took an Uber to deliver her baby while we hosted her daughter. Can you imagine Whoa. taking an Uber to the hospital to deliver your baby? No. And having nobody there while you're you were all by, pushing? She was all by herself. All by herself. It was not coronavirus. She wasn't like limited to one visitor. Yeah. She had nobody to go with her. Hello and welcome to Lancelot's Roundtable. Today, I'm going to be engaging in an interesting topic, uh, and we're going to be talking about an organization called Safe Families. And I was fascinated when I started hearing about this organization, what they do, and how they support local communities. So the little bit that I'm going to share here, I'm taking directly from their website, safe-families.org. So Safe Families was founded in 2003. And the whole idea is to surround families in crisis with caring, compassion, a caring and compassionate community. It's a volunteer nonprofit that provides hope to support families in our local communities. I was really fascinated with this little bit that they have in their website. In many situations, parents or guardians may be incapable of providing a safe and caring environment for their children, putting them at risk of abuse and neglect. In the past, extended families or neighbors helped step in to help families in crisis by caring for their children for short periods of time. Today, however, many families are socially isolated and their extended family is non-existent or unavailable or unable to help. I just find that incredibly fascinating because even just in the last two years, well, in the last year, 2020, we're in 2021 now at the time of this recording, but thinking about 2020, and how all of a sudden everybody had to be home from school, had to be home from work. And if you found yourself that isolated, maybe you had recently moved, maybe you didn't have like a good network of friendships, you just basically find yourself without support. And then you hit crisis, maybe you lose your job uh, because you were a waitress or something like that, and you can no longer afford to take care of your kids in the same way that you used to. And this organization, from my understanding, basically is there and ready to help step in in whatever way individuals need help. And it is community-based, it sounds like. So it's something that happens like to support your actual community. And uh, there's different chapters that are set up, as I understand it. And so the idea, I think, is that if you want to set one up, you set one up in your community, and you're the best one that knows how to support your community as opposed to somebody outside of the community coming in and telling you how you need help. So I am really excited today. Um, because I have the co-director of the local Safe Families chapter here, and we are going to be talking all about Safe Families 
what it is, what they do, and how they help our community. So I'm happy to introduce a mother of four kids who's worked with kids and families for the past 20 years. She's even operated her own daycare. She's been a family coach for Boys Town in California. Her and her husband were actually the first host family for the Columbus chapter of Safe Families. They've actually hosted kids in their house, in their home, for over 500 nights. Today, I am happy to welcome to Lancelot's Roundtable, the co-director of Safe Families, Columbus Chapter, Melody Marshall. Melody, welcome to the Roundtable. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. So tell me how you got involved in uh, Safe Families. Okay. It's kind of a long story. I'll try not to be too verbose, but... I have been working with kids and families for over 20 years, but that started out as just babysitting Mm -hmm. um, when I was probably way too young to babysit because (laughs) (laughs) in the old days, I feel like parents just let like the teenage, not even teenage, preteen girl from next door come over. Yeah, the tween. (laughs) Um, So babysitting, and then I went to college for human development and family science, which I hoped to do elementary education with, but um, got... Um, married between my junior and senior year of college. You got married while you were in college? I didn't even think I remembered that. Yep, the summer before my senior year. Melody and I have known each other for many, many years. Many, many years. By the way. (laughs) Sorry, continue. Since we were both huge nerds. Yes. Yes, we were in the nerd phase. We got out of it. Some of us had larger glasses than others. I had ginormous glasses. (laughs) I'm pretty sure since I got out of the nerd phase, I have tripped and fallen back into it a little bit. (laughs) Hey, I love nerds. I married a nerd. That's true. Sorry, Jeff. Um, (laughs) You can take it. Um, So, yeah, I went to school for that, uh, got married, didn't end up teaching. I was a teacher's aide for a year after college. Um, Then we had our first baby, super young, too. Mm -hmm. I was only 22 when we had our first kid. Um, So I started babysitting because it became soon obvious to us that we couldn't really live on one income. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started babysitting again, having kids in my home running what I would call like a home daycare. Um, I did that for a few years uh, while I had my first child and then my second child. Um, And then... How many kids were you doing like at the peak? So I ran a daycare again after California with my mom and and we watched like 12 kids at a time then together. But when I was just doing it by myself... Five, maybe? Five with with young, your own young kids. With my own, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you should have a badge or something for that. I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, sadly, that's not sadly, true. Sadly, no badges. Um, and then my husband and I started to talk about kind of the gift. This was really shortly after my second baby was born. The gift that it was to be from safe families, which is ironic because it's the name of our organization, Mm -hmm. but from families that were safe and whole and no family's perfect, but there weren't um, any major traumas in our lives. And then to now be creating this family together that Mm -hmm. was safe and whole Mm -hmm. with no major trauma. We hoped they would not go through any major trauma. Yes. Um, And just how that wasn't everyone's experience and what mm. why had we been given this blessing and what could we do with this blessing and so we started looking for jobs where we could help people who were struggling we wanted to be able to work together mm-hmm. um we found this organization called boys town mm-hmm. uh which is a pretty famous organization they made like a movie about them in the 40s um oh i didn't know that yeah huh. um and we got a job with them as house parents and we moved out to California. Yeah. And we uh, were house parents for 
at-risk teenage girls, and we lived with them and did life with them and taught them life skills. And um, Let me set the premise here. Let me make sure that I have this right in my memory. You had how many girls? Six. Six girls that you were assigned to that lived in a house with you mm-hmm. seven days a week? Yep. 24 hours a day? Yep. So we had an assistant. We got two eight-hour shifts off a week, so not ever even a full day. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the idea was that you would live your life with these kids. Yeah, um, almost like they get to be brought into your own life. Is yes. that the idea? A lot of them had not ever experienced being part of a family in any whole or good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was giving them a chance to experience family traditions. And, I mean, they had rules like you can't take off... Um, you can't be gone on a holiday. Like you have to be there on Christmas because you're this family's or these girls' family. Yeah. Um, so if we wanted to see our family, they would either come to us or we would go home a week after Christmas. Got it. Um, okay. So that it wasn't interrupting the holiday. Are you allowed to talk about like their backgrounds, like what they were? Sure, I can share a little bit. So the kids in our care came to us a few different ways. Um, they came to us from either a mental health rehabilitation, um, from juvenile delinquency or because they were considered too high of behaviors for the foster care system. So we had more training and background and like safety measures in place than your typical foster parent would. Mm -hmm. So we could take a kid that was maybe too aggressive or, um, struggling with too many mental health issues to be in a typical foster home could come and live with us. And we were like extensively trained for that. Um, wow. And had good supervisors and stuff like that. So yeah. we moved there with our eight-month-old and two-year-old. Unreal. <laughs> moved across the country, <laughs> took in six teenage girls. Um, it was super fun. Like, it's one of our, like, favorite memories of our lifetime. Yeah. It was also extremely challenging. Yeah. So you have days where you're, like, at Santa Monica Pier with the teenage girls. They're all being great. And you're at the beach. And you're like, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this. Yeah. Um, and then you have days where someone's screaming at you and breaking every dish in the house. And you're hiding your you're one of the spouses has to take the kids back in the locked apartment area for safety. Yeah. Um, and you're like, I'm not getting paid enough for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was just a very like highs and lows season of life. Yeah. We, we ended up after about, um, 18 months deciding it wasn't really the environment we wanted to raise our own kids in. Mm-hmm. It was difficult to kind of share attention equally. Mm. Um, and feel like, yeah, that they were getting everything that they needed from us mm-hmm. because the needs of the girls in the house were really high. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't regret at all going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel like it's a huge part of who we are. But, yeah, it wasn't long-term sustainable for us as a family. Yeah, so then that's when you guys came back here? hmm Okay. So we came back, um, and we kind of had in our minds, like, we want to do a similar thing. Um, and so foster parenting seems like the right idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also like had no jobs and no home and <laughs> we're like starting over square one again, square one, <laughs> which is easy when you have two kids. Yes. Two young kids. That <laughs> yep. sounds like a walk in the park. Yep. Um, so we like, I started up the daycare with my mom that I referenced earlier because mm-hmm. she had a house in Dublin with four bedrooms and all her kids had moved out. So that's Dublin, Ohio. That's a nice suburb. One of the nice suburbs here in Columbus, Ohio. Yep. Um, and Jeff started working for Chase Bank again, Mm -hmm. which, um, he hates math and it's very shocking still. (laughs) He still works for Chase Bank. Here we are like 10 years later. Um, but 
so he started working for them and we kind of got our foundation built again. Yeah. We moved back into a, our own house instead of staying with my parents for a few months. <laughs> oh, that's right. You stayed with your parents for a few months once you yeah. guys came back. So, yeah. I mean, basically that, that's just even mind blowing to me because you, you uprooted what you had already built with young kids. You go and you do this drastic, like amazing thing bringing in these, these troubled teenagers, working with them, and then for 18 months, then you step out of that, come all the way back here, and then have to get your bearings. I can't imagine. I couldn't have done anything like that when I had, when my kids were initially that young. So that always just blows my mind, that experience that you guys had. So uh, go from, maybe from there then, how did you get involved with Safe Family? So you're like doing the daycare and everything. You're basically yeah. just doing life at this point. Yeah, and I'm realizing I'm telling you the extremely long version. That's totally fine. <laughs> totally fine. You're just too easy to talk to. <laughs> um, so I'm going to fast forward through some years. <laughs> couple things happened. Couple things happened. Couple, couple more, more kids. kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, yep, we had two more kids while we were doing those jobs. and But all along, I was it, the daycare was really cool and rewarding because I'm still mm. helping kids and families. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of really neat opportunity to help families who were having their first baby and just overwhelmed yeah. with behavior and yeah. sleep patterns and all those things. And we were able to um, build really neat relationships, friendships that are still there for sure. Well, yeah, even even thinking about that, you guys had, you know, we all we shared a lot of the same friends. You guys got married the first. You guys had kids when a lot of us, your first, your first boy, I think, n- I don't know if anybody was married hmm. initially when you guys had Caspian. Oh, no. Baby Caspian was <laughs> carried around in his car seat at your wedding, at the Kimball's yeah, wedding, at every, all, all our friends' weddings. Weddings, yeah. <laughs> so then, yeah, so once we started having kids, you guys already had gone through all of that. Yeah, and you guys got married very young, too. It we wasn't did. like we... I got married. I was 25. She was 21. Mm-hmm. That's what's up. She literally <laughs> actually turned... To, yeah, well, I was going to say 21 that year, but we got married in October, and she had turned 21 in uh, April. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we, uh, yeah, we got married really young. We waited, to, we waited a bit till we had kids. Mm-hmm. I was not ready for kids for a long time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, continue, please. Anyway... Um, yeah, we just kind of were living our life and trying to get settled, but had in our mind, like, Hey, we really, we really want to go back to helping families who are in need and crisis Mm -hmm. and kind of all the pieces lined up, um, in 2017 for me to stop working at the daycare and, um, us to try to mostly live on Jeff's salary and, Mm -hmm. um, which would free me up to start taking foster kids in our home. So we were going to start this process and the same summer, um, Phil and Aaron Kraus, and Phil's the other co-director alongside me. Mm-hmm. Um, they had moved to Columbus a couple years before then, and they got they really had this heart and passion for this program they had heard of called Safe Families for Children. Mm-hmm. And so they were starting it at our church as like the home based church in Columbus, and we were like, I mean, this seems too like um, lined up to be an accident. These two things are happening at the yeah. same time. We're ready, and this organization is starting, which does a similar thing. Um, and I think the thing that really gripped our hearts most about safe families versus, um, going ahead with our plan B in foster care Mm -hmm. is that safe families focuses on prevention and finding out why are there so many kids in foster care? Mm -hmm. And instead of just pulling all these kids out of the water, how about we swim upstream and see why so many kids are ending up in the water? Mm-hmm. And so instead of just helping kids after they're already kind of at this worst point of crisis, let's go see what's going on with these parents and why they're struggling. Hmm. And that idea of prevention really gripped my heart because 
when we worked at Boys Town, we were getting girls who were 15, 16, 17. Mm. They've already been through so much trauma. Mm-hmm. And so there, we have some really neat like testimonies of our time there. Um, and I'll give you one example. There was a girl who mm-hmm. um, moved into our care on 12 different psychotropic medications. Um, she was on over 1,000 milligrams of lithium a day, pretty Whoa. much every antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication that you could think of. So every time that she had a problem, doctors had just thrown more and more medication at this problem until she, I mean, she really couldn't even look you in the eye. Like her whole uh, personality was changed because there were so many medications that she was on. And how old was she? She was 17. Wow. She had gone into the foster care at um, the age of one into the foster care system and been in 33 foster homes. Age of one? between the ages of 1 to 17. Wow. How many? How many? 33. 33. Jeez. And in several of those placements had been raped and abused and just been through some terrible things. Mm-hmm. And so she moved into our home and, and became just like the light of our house. She was so funny. We loved her so much. She really connected with our family. She really loved our kids. Mm-hmm. And after eight months of living with us, she was on one mild antidepressant, she went um, to school on an art scholarship to do art therapy to no help kids way. who had been through similar things to her. What? So she was amazing. But rewind to this one-year-old girl who ended up in foster care and faced all this abuse in 33 different homes. Her mom, she was placed in foster care because her mom had a mental health illness okay. um, similar to bipolar or extreme depression. Mm-hmm. What if... This mom with this little one-year-old girl had had a community come alongside her, help mm-hmm. her get the help that she needed, help her to keep her daughter in her home, mm-hmm. and then avoided all of this just insane trauma that this girl had gone through. Right. And so we just were so touched by this idea of, let's get ahead of the game. Let's yeah. try to prevent these things that are happening. Yeah. So there are, there are 438,000 kids in foster care in the United States. And 70% of them are there because of neglect, which is a preventable situation. Yep. When families are in crisis, which I think we could all say about ourselves, if we were in the right type of crisis and didn't have support around us, if you're socially isolated, you could end up homeless. You could end up right. um, with a child welfare investigation at your home. Right. If you're, I mean, all of us, I think especially this year in humility, we can say yep. after the stress of coronavirus and being in our homes all the time with ourselves and our kids facing real trauma, basically, right. with what we've been through, right. um, at least trauma with a lowercase t, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that any of us could end up in that situation yep. if, the, if the circumstances were right. And yeah. Um, we need communities to come alongside us and we need to stop being so judgmental of mm-hmm. people who are suffering and struggling in crisis. And gosh, 70% of those 438,000 kids think if, think of what a difference that would make, um, to those kids, mm-hmm. to their futures. I mean, the numbers of kids in foster care who end up in the prison system is way too high. Mm-hmm. Um, And then think, too, the foster care system is a wonderful system if it's operating correctly. Think of what they could do with the kids who really need them, who are facing true abuse. Right. If they had the manpower freed up, because they're only serving 30% of the kids they're serving. Yeah, yeah. Um, So all of those things just really gripped our hearts, and we were like, okay, this is what we want to do. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have any idea of coming on staff then. I just, Mm -hmm. we were just like, these are the kids we want to have in our home. Mm Mm-hmm. 
We want to be about building relationship with uh, the parent too. We want to mm-hmm. not just have this little girl in our home. We had a little girl f- for our first placement. She lived with us for eight months. But we want to care about her mom. We want to build a relationship with her mom because our goal is to reunify her with her mom because we know that's the best place for her to be. Yeah, right. So if mom can walk out of these circumstances, we can work with the girl on being excited about mom. We talk positively about her. We pray for her in our home. Mm-hmm. We FaceTime with her. Mm-hmm. Um, then her connection to mom stays strong while she's with us. Mm-hmm. And then when we, we reunify, they have the greatest chance for success mm-hmm. um, in staying together as a family. And they, I mean, say families nationwide, and I take no credit for this, I'm just part of like one of the newer chapters. Yeah. Safe Families Nationwide has a 97% success rate at reunifying families no and way. keeping them together. 97%. Mm-hmm. Is there a similar stat comparison on foster care? I don't know the exact stat, but it is it's not, not that it's not high. Yeah. Um, I feel like I was reading it today and it was a lot of kids end up aging out of the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, not being able to reunify. So probably not even necessarily even knowing how to function. So if you age out of the foster care system and if you turn 18, <laughs> yeah. you are considered an adult right. and the state does not help you anymore and you are on your own. But think right. about who you were at 18, even in with being <laughs> raised by like a healthy, stable family yeah. with a low level of trauma in your life. So now then yeah. imagine like all these 18 year olds who have aged out of foster care, maybe they've been with like eight different families or more. Um, they're not ready to go be adults and make no, good decisions. And no. it almost feels not surprising at all that the prison numbers would be that high or that right. teenage pregnancies would be that high or any of those things that happen. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you mentioned because it's, it, that I think that's the thing that kind of blew my mind out of the water when I initially started hearing about uh, safe families. So the idea and the concept of prevention. So, you guys are literally going into it with like, let's go to the moment that the crisis started, because even what you were just describing with things that happened in during, you know, 2020 with coronavirus and everything, and just in a heartbeat, drastic change in your circumstances, that's been happening before coronavirus, but it, I think it's a little bit, been a little bit more obvious over the last year, but it is so easy. If you really sit down and like you think about it, how close you and your family are to that type of a crisis all it takes is one bad thing happening and then there could be like a snowball trigger so you're almost talking about like the concept of even before the snowball effect happens maybe the maybe the event still happens the 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 crisis still happens but it it, you de you can de-escalate it before it gets really really bad so talk Mm -hmm. with me a little bit more about how that works practically Yeah. So most people have what we would call a circle of support, either family or friends that are there for you when you're going through something hard. Mm -hmm. So when we moved home from California, for example, we stayed with my parents for three months and Mm -hmm. then they helped babysit our kids when we got our first jobs. And then all our friends came and helped us move into an apartment and like all of these things that we take for granted when we're in good, deep community. And even when we've struggled in the area of community, it's nothing compared to what I see some of these moms walk through where they're like... (laughs) the mom that we hosted for first took an Uber to deliver her baby while we hosted her daughter. Can you imagine taking an Uber to the hospital to deliver your baby No. and having nobody there while you were pushing? She was all by herself. All by herself. It was not coronavirus. She wasn't like limited to one visitor. She had nobody to go with her. So these circles of support that we have, they make a huge difference when we walk through crisis and everyone will walk through crisis. Yes. 
Um, and so if you don't have anybody like that, it's, you so quickly go from, I've got my act together, or maybe even I just think I, I'm doing okay to like, uh, my child was sick three times. And so I had to leave and got kicked out of daycare. So I had to leave work all of those times. And so now I lost my job mm-hmm. and I had no family member to go help pick up the kid. And mm-hmm. I had no friend who will, um, tell me that her company's hiring and I've got a job within the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just like that, your whole life can change if you don't have any of these supports put in place. Right. Um, and I think it's arrogant to think that any of us are protected from that for sure. We can all Agreed. think we have every duck in a, all our ducks in a row and nothing like that would ever happen to me. And I have this amount of say in savings and I'm saving for my kids college and all these things. Yeah. Um, but you just don't know what life's going to throw at you. Yeah, definitely agreed. So in 2019, we hit a huge crisis with Kim's health. Mm-hmm. And thank God it didn't happen in 2020. But in 2019, it was like right at the beginning of the year, you, the health, your health started to decline. Kim is Mike. Do you want to say hi? Yeah. Hey, folks. <laughs> so we had support set up, though, when that happened. And I remember, I remember we needed childcare. And like dropping my kids up, dropping our kids off at my parents' house for two or three nights. And I remember somebody taking you to the ER while I had the kids. Like if we hadn't had family, if we hadn't had, you know, the church that we go to, and if we didn't have friends, like, I don't know if I would have kept my job because, you know, you can only call off so many times Mm -hmm. before, before you, before you don't have that job anymore. So tell me a little bit about how Safe Families practically steps in and helps out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate your introspection, even in thinking about your own story, because I think everybody has that. And it's an important part of being compassionate is recognizing that, but for the grace of God, there go I. Yes. Um, right. And I think that all of the time. Um, yeah. So Safe Families has a referral line mm-hmm. um, and a lot of referring partners. So a lot of people in town know about us. Franklin County Children's Services knows about us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's programs like Mommy's Matter and Moms to Be that work with pregnant moms before and after birth. Mm-hmm. Um, there are like Huckleberry House and homeless shelters and all these different programs that know about us. Um, and we're trying to keep doing that. We want even more people to know about us. So it's great to be on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, But all of them, so if a mom walks into the hospital at Nationwide Children's and their social workers know us well, Mm -hmm. if a mom walks into the hospital and her two-year-old needs a surgery and her one-year-old has nowhere to go so the mom can sit by the two-year-old's bedside, Mm -hmm. the caseworker at Children's would give her the number for safe families and she can call and say, this is the situation. I will be, the surgery is this time and I'll need help for this many days. And one of our host families, which we have trained and vetted and background checked and done home assessments for them. um, One of our host families would come and we do all the paperwork. We're legit and above board. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Would come to the hospital and get the one-year-old and take them to a safe place to stay so mom can be by the bedside of her two-year-old. So what you just described is the quintessential situation where this poor mom, single single mom, Mm -hmm. uh, can't be in two places at once, Mm -hmm. needs to be able to care give for two kids, Mm -hmm. needs to be present, and then you guys actually can go there 
Mm-hmm. You're working. The social workers know about you, mm-hmm. so the system knows about you, mm-hmm. and they probably even appreciate the fact that you can step in and avoid probably stuff that they see. And then th- this family that's been trained and is ready to go, kind of maybe on call, essentially, I would assume we can talk about that, but yeah. they go and they take care of that kid. And it's not even like this permanent thing. Right. So the mom, the really cool thing about us is mom never loses custody. Mm-hmm. So if mom went back to that room and left the one-year-old in the lobby, mm-hmm. um, children's services would be called immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would come and pick up the kid and put them in an emergency foster care placement. Um, and so the the difference in the levels of trauma that research shows when a child is taken forcibly away from their parent versus joyfully handed mm. off in like a co-parenting way. Like, hey, this is my friend. They're going to have you for a few days. Mm-hmm. And then the person who's taking them is like, um, your mommy's so brave. She's staying at um, with your sibling and we can't wait to see her again. Let's pray for her. I'm sure she's scared. I'm sure you're scared. The difference in the level of trauma for the kid's brain is just drastic. It will make, it will have such a different effect on them over the long term and their ability to attach healthily to adults. Um, yeah. so that makes a really big difference. Um, and then just mom knowing that she has custody. So she's not, she's not afraid at the end of the two year old surgery and hospital stay mm-hmm. that she's going to now have a caseworker mm-hmm. and court appointments and all this pile of paperwork she has to complete to get her child back, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a lot on a mom who's already probably overwhelmed if she's a single mom trying to hold down a job, get her child to daycare. So you add in court appointments, you're missing work for those. Um, There's all these like red tape things that are difficult for parents. So that's, that's one of the things that is, that really sets us apart. And then two, just um, a lot of our moms, the first time that they experience compassion and someone talking to them like they are worthwhile mm-hmm. um, is with our families. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of training on fighting against compassion fatigue and understanding people in poverty who are different than you, understanding the whole brain and why it's acting the way that it's acting during stress and crisis. And so we do all of those trainings and that helps our families to connect well when they're in those moments where mom's overwhelmed. Cause that for her, that's one of the worst moments of her life. She's still right. giving her child to a stranger. It's right. still really hard. Right. Um, but almost always these beautiful relationships are built. And mm-hmm. one of our host families just, they had this like weekend hosting for a family. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, the kids were only with them a couple days and here two years later, they are still spending Christmases with this family who had wow. no community yeah. No person to call for a weekend yeah. for this crisis. And now all of a sudden they have someone to spend every Christmas with. Wow. Like it's just really transformative. And I think the church, the reason that we use volunteers in the church and why it works so well is A, because the gospel really matters to us and we mm-hmm. think that it's a difference maker. Mm-hmm. But B, the church is already kind of living in community with each other. Mm-hmm. So you're just ask you're just I feel like sometimes safe families is just introducing this person with no community in crisis. Like we have the privilege of having ways and means to meet that person. Mm-hmm. And we're just introducing them to this big, healthy community and mm-hmm. they can just absorb them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the foster parents have a 50% burnout rate in the first year who, of people who go through foster parenting classes and all that 50% burnout. Jeez. Um, and safe families sees a very minute amount of burnout in comparison because it's not like all on the host family, mm-hmm. your home group, helps out and, and people bring you meals and gather clothes for the babies and car seats. And 
there's this really beautiful support that happens that keeps the whole church engaged, even if there's only one host family there. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, the idea of being, being seated in a church? I don't even know if that's the correct term, but it, you work directly in tandem with not just one church, but churches. Yes. So, so Safe Families in Central Ohio has 15 partner churches right now. Mm-hmm. Um, our goal for 2021 is to partner with four new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, we work regularly to reach out to and partner with churches. We hold interest meetings to try to get volunteers who want to sign up for our training. Mm-hmm. And so each church to be considered like a safe family church, A, your leadership would have to say like, yes, we're cool with partnering. Um, and we're with all different denominations. It's not like we're all just, I don't know, within one set That's denomination. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. It's been a super privilege. One of my favorite parts, just getting to know like really amazing people all around the city in all different types of churches. Yeah. Because I, I know you know, I grew up in like a one denomination, like we are, yeah, we the know best right. church. Yeah. <laughs> we and, grew up in that way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's really cool to partner with all these churches, but, um, the, so the church leadership has to be on board. Then each church has to have something called a ministry lead. And they're kind of like the liaison between safe families and the church. Okay. So when a hosting starting, we reach out to the ministry lead and they say like, okay. And they drum up the support kind of within the church. Like, okay, there's lots of sign up geniuses happening. (laughs) Who's going to bring the meals what day and who's going to be praying for them. Um, how, how, what do you? What would you say the complexity is for a church to get integrated, or for safe families to get integrated into a church? It's not really that complex. I think you just have to have some willing people, like yeah. some people who are uh, ready to go and are excited about it. And really, even one person can be like a catalyst in the church. Yeah. Um, so all you really need is the ministry lead, one host family. Yeah. So in your whole church. Which, by the way, there are more churches in Ohio than there are children in the foster care system in Ohio. What? So if every church, not every Christian family, every church took in one child, we would Whoa. empty the foster care system. <laughs> what? So all you need is one host family in your church. And then our goal, we wouldn't like keep you from being at church if you didn't have this, but our goal is to always have a family coach too, which is a unique role that Safe Families has. A family coach will... Um, they will check on the host family and like make sure the kids are okay there and provide advice for them. But then they are also working with the referring parent. And so Hmm. let's say we have a family who came to us because they're in a homeless shelter and mom's looking for a job and she can't go on interviews because they're all in a homeless shelter and she has to watch her kids all the time. Mm -hmm. So we're hosting during that. So the family coach will also pre COVID meet with mom. Now we're doing a lot of things over the phone, but um, ideally meet with mom. And sometimes she needs help making her resume. Sometimes she needs help just saying like, I have these 20 ideas. Will you help me organize them into what's most important? Or we do a lot of giving ideas of like what jobs are out there that might be good for people. Um, So the family coach just helps mom make up her plan, Mm -hmm. mom or dad. We do primarily work with moms. We have had a few single dads and a few couples that we've worked with, but Mm -hmm. sometimes I accidentally say mom um, because that's just what I'm most used to. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah the, that's what it takes for a church to be involved and it's not much. And then it usually spreads from there. We have some churches though, that have just stayed at the one host family cause they've, it matters so much to them. But then a lot of people in the church are engaged in like supporting that host family well, or dropping yeah. off resources for the referring parent. Yeah. Um, and then we have other churches where it's just steadily growing in each training that we do. We have a couple new families at it. Um, um am I right though, in assuming that 
what you're describing is that Safe Family provides all the training and the resources needed. So really, it sounds like what you're saying is you just need even like one or two people in a church, and then that church can instantly be like a partner for mm-hmm. Safe Families. And the, 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 the impact that you have been describing is nothing small. It's, it's, you're literally describing a, a level of effect that you can't even necessarily measure because you're, you're like catching the pebble before it hits, it hits something and causes an avalanche. You're just mm-hmm. picking up that little pebble, pebble. It just sounds like the level of effort is very small compared to the level of impact. Is that yeah. fair? I think so. I think whenever you work with broken families, you're having an effect that you'll never be able to measure because you're because of how brokenness and bondage passes down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. If you can get in there and stop that cycle, then you don't know how many people you've helped for whatever yeah. amount of generations. That's a really good point. Um, but then also to your point, and that was kind of our thought when we moved to Boys Town, but to your point, if you get in and prevent before this family's even in crisis, um, then yeah, you do, it's, it's difficult to measure. It's difficult to measure the worth of being in a community, in a, mm-hmm. in a healthy mm-hmm. community and how that changes your life. And, um, I feel like you can see that more now this year than any other year when, as, as everyone in the world is kind of facing being isolated because we're stuck yeah. in our homes. Um, we, we hopefully would grow in compassion more than ever for someone who's living that has lived that daily for every day of their lives. Right. Um, being isolated from any type of help or support. They just released a Gallup poll that said um, the, that mental health has declined so much this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one group only who has seen no decline in mental health, and it's people who um, stayed completely engaged with their church every week. Isn't that crazy? Really? It was not a Christian poll. It was like... Yeah. A secular poll. Yeah. Um, but people who either did their online service or went to church every single week were the only group of people that didn't face any mental health decline. Wow. I know. Wow. It's so crazy. So that like impact that it can make to... So in a beautiful ideal world, I don't want to say this always works this way, sure. but in a beautiful ideal world, we host for this family in their moment of crisis Um, we invite mom to church with us. We introduce her to our friends or we invite her to the park and we introduce her to our friends. Mm -hmm. And then at some point she's just part of your community. She's a new piece of your church. And in a year where we're talking about befriending and being close to people who are different than you, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing in your church too, to have all these avenues to bring in new people who are hurting and broken and, um, invite them into the life that you're living. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, then, and then there's less stress on the one family too. They're not like mm-hmm. meeting all the needs of a very needy family. Um, you know, my friend can run a meal over to this mom too, when she's yeah. going through something or, um, yeah. well, that, that's even one thing that you, you mentioned that, that really kind of took, took me by surprise, but it makes complete sense that you have the one, you have one family that is deciding that they're going to be a host family. That's maybe the biggest level of commitment that's required, but they don't even have to do it alone. The idea that that they get they get all the training that they need, right? But then they get support and help from the people that they're already naturally like doing life with. That's that's got to be that's got to be huge. Yeah, yeah. We're working as a community inside our own giftings instead of 
I mean, everybody is not called to host kids in their home. Right. And that's okay. There's yeah. other things. There's other very valid and important. I would fall into that category. Yeah. To be honest, I would fall into the category <laughs> oh, of. Oh, I brought not, some kids with me. You don't want me to bring uh, them in? No, I'm good. I'm pretty full up, but I'm happy to drop <laughs> off a meal. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe that's your bandwidth. And you don't even know as a host mom who hosted 500 nights, what it means to me when a meal gets dropped off. Yeah. I mean, that impacts my ability to say yes the next time. Exactly. Yeah. You, okay. So that, that brings me back to another thing. You kind of flippantly, not flippantly, but you just kind of casually lobbed this big term out there that I want to know more about. <laughs> I think you said compassion fatigue. So what that made me think about is somebody, yeah, maybe they decide to be a foster parent and then Maybe it's finding out about that child's background. Maybe it's about f- knowing what, where that child may end up when they're no longer with you and what they may have to experience. And, and then just the day-to-day of caring for an individual and their issues, whatever they are. Is that what f- compassion fatigue is, just that mental drain aspect that happens when you step into this type of a situation. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe several of the ways you can be fatigued with <laughs> your compassion. <laughs> that was said wrong, but um so I mean you're working in some really hard stories that a lot of yeah. if you live in a white middle class suburban home, you can probably stick your head in the sand and pretend a lot of really hard things are not happening. Correct. Um And when you work in a ministry like Safe Families, you're intentionally choosing to turn and look at the hard and ugly and messy stuff in life. Yeah. Um, And that's difficult. It's difficult on your own mental health. It's difficult um, to keep having hope and believing the best. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of people, it's a common phrase. I didn't make it up. A lot of people experience what's called compassion fatigue, where you go in, you think you're going with your eyes wide open. You have this heart of compassion for people who are suffering, mm-hmm. um, but maybe you help one or two moms and then they go back to drugs after their kids are reunified mm-hmm. or um, they blow their stimulus check on a new TV or mm-hmm. um, whatever the choice is that maybe doesn't make sense to you and you start to feel like, um, how dare you after I helped you? Like, how dare you not follow these yeah. wonderful steps and have your life in order now? Yeah. Um, in ignorance, because I I personally have no idea what it would feel like to have been through everything these moms have been through, mm-hmm. and not they didn't maybe have a mom who or a dad who taught them how to make wise financial decisions, right. or to how to think ahead about their future, and so they might be operating um, their adulting level might be like <laughs> as an eight year old, yeah, like how an eight year old makes plans for the future, yeah. In fact, science shows us that when you face a major trauma, a lot of your brain development stops at that developmental age. Mm. And so you have to, all these developmental stages that you can learn about in psychology, they haven't even gone through them because of this major, major trauma that kind of stopped their growth at that age. Yeah. And so, sorry, I'm like talking about it in the wrong order. Um, We're facing compassion fatigue because the choices don't make sense to us. And we're just like, this is too hard. It's too much. Yeah. I want to just play Mario Kart with my kids yeah. <laughs> and not think about how hard these stories are. Um, I want to go on vacation and not feel the tension of, I work with all these moms who will never get to go on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to bury my head back in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> That's compassion fatigue. Yeah. And we fight for it hard in our ministry because we believe it's the backbone. We believe 
um, that we have to have compassion. It changes everything about the way that we interact with people. Yeah. And people know if you're sitting across from them and judging them and thinking bad things about them or thinking that they're less than you, they will know. They will read it in your body language. language. They will yeah. hear it in your wording. Um, well, they're so, probably know, used to it, right? Yeah. They've probably experienced it however many times, so they, they're hypersensitive to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but they are very, they can pick up on it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, to be able to sit across from somebody that's actually being understanding has to be... Yeah. Even like what you were describing with the the way that you guys would come in and like, you know, encourage the mom, encourage the kid in front of mom or dad mm-hmm. um, in such a way that it, it it's, it's so much more positive. Um, but I even like what you said about the putting, putting, putting your head in the sand. And I think... We have so many uh, methods of sticking our head in the sand uh, available to us. Media, social media, hobbies, good hobbies, bad hobbies. But yeah, the majority of us just, there are, there are, there are ugly underbellies in society and the ability to, to, to choose to look at that and not turn away and not be scared and just maybe do like a small step in that direction. Mm-hmm. I remember, you remember Ron back in the day? No, does, I don't remember does he have Ron. A last name? Uh, <laughs> he like does. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it okay. though. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he was, he, I'm, we, I met him when we were going to the same church that you guys go to awaken church. Um, I met him and he and I would go get coffee once a week for a while and just talk. And he told me about his childhood and this is like a, I think he was in his 50s at the time, 50s or 60s. Most horrific childhood. I couldn't have even imagined it. But And it was so, it was so, the, his stories were so too in extreme. I almost didn't believe them hmm. at first. And I was like, there's no way. But they were, ver- they were verified stories. Um, and that was hard. I had, you, you, you understand that society as a whole can be ugly, especially if you've ever studied any, anything historical. But that's even more like on a massive scale. But to hear about somebody's individual day-to-day horrific experience and the impact that that has on somebody, is, it is really hard to hear that and to understand that that hasn't been wiped off the face of the earth. That stuff is still going on every single day. But the, the fact and the idea that safe families is an established organization and there there's, there's a strategy in place to directly impact that. Um, cause even what you just described, like when you go through, when you go through a childhood and you don't know any better, all you know is the struggles that you've watched your parents go through and how they've coped with it. You're not, you're, you're in that moment. You're not very well set up for success. Mm -hmm. So you guys aren't, I think you mentioned this a while ago, but you guys aren't even just impacting a single life or a single family. You're actually impacting future people, future kids, Mm -hmm. which is, that's amazing. That's amazing to me to think about. So can you maybe take some time right now? People that are listening to this and they're having different thoughts and ideas, I always like to try to talk about small ways and small things that we as individuals do. When we hear something like this and we get moved to like, I wish, yeah, that's like a big deal. I want to take some action. What, what's, what are some things that just an average person listening, listening to this could do 
um, whether it's contacting safe families, getting involved with safe families, trying to get their church involved with safe families, um, just some ways that people can can get involved and help their community because this is community help that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that it will have a huge impact on the community for years to come. It's had a huge impact in the 17 years it's been around. It's continuing to have a large impact. Um, and I really appreciate the question of figuring out what are the small ways. Cause it can feel like a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like have a home safety checklist and background check and a kid move in with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a big step. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think there's a lot of people who could do it, who think they couldn't and just it would be hard to take that first step. Yeah. Um, but we hold interest meetings fairly regularly and we'll have people reach out to us from a church. We really believe in going through the church. It creates a lot more resiliency for us because mm-hmm. of what I shared about before. Um, not having isolated families all around the city burning out after one hosting or, mm-hmm. um, we want to like shepherd and care for the families who are hosting really well too. And the churches that we're partnered with, um, so you can get on our website, which is columbus.safe-families.org. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for our specific chapter. Um, and all of our information's on there, the referral line, my email address. Um, and you could reach out to me via email or Phil Krause, our, my co-director. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, I literally have people do this probably once a week. Introduce yourself. Say like, hey, I have a heart for this or I just want to know some more. And we'll call you, email you, get together with you. Um, And then sometimes that spools into, we hold an interest meeting at your church and Mm. maybe 20 people are there and 10 of them end up becoming host families. You don't know what what can come from that. But just your interest can make a really big difference. So that's kind of like a first step. We have these roles too. I talked about the family coach. Like if you don't feel like a, a child could come into your home, you could be a family coach and work with um, supporting the host families, but then also ministering to and helping um, referring parents come up with their life plans. Well, that could even be a single person, right? Oh, yeah. We have single uh, family coaches for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have single uh, host families. You do? Okay. Yeah. One of them is related to Kim. Really? Mm-hmm. It's Jill. Oh, Hey, Jill, she's shout hosted out. Like, yeah, Jill. She's hosted like two or three times, I think. I she is it. wonderful. Yes. We gave her our crib. After we, oh, see, after you're, we got out the you're actually stage. already involved with safe Look families. At Look at that. <laughs> we did our part, <laughs> folks. Right. Yep. <laughs> so we also have like family friends and resource friends, which you guys, I would call you a resource friend because you sure. provided a resource for one of our hostings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a resource friend is what they sound like. They would help give supplies to the host family. We try a lot of times to like, even if kids are just coming for a weekend, like, Let's donate a bunch of clothes to them. They're not usually new, but we have like a safe families closet or the, ch- I'm sure at your church, like people are handing around clothes like, Oh, oh I have yeah. a two year old boy. Here's my, all my boy clothes yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, so get, get a, like a week's worth of clothes and send it home with the kid when they go home. And now mom has a whole new week, like week of yeah. clothes for her kid's size. Um, and so that's a resource friend. A family friend does more like physical type help. They might come over. We had one mom whose husband worked third shift and they were hosting. Gosh, I think they had like a two and a four year old Mm. and they hosted another two and a four year old 
um, one of whom had autism. <laughs> and so he worked third or second shift. So he was gone all evening. So Got she it. was alone with two two-year-olds, two four-year-olds. Oh, and wow. pe- uh, everyone at her church just took turns coming over and like yep. helping her get through bath time and bedtime for a couple hours in the evening. And then they would, so that physically going and helping and being involved, you can do things like that. Yeah. Um, or giving rides or things of that nature. So those are some of the other roles you can play. And the ministry lead that I mentioned earlier. So yeah. most of our ministry leads don't host. They're just a person who's excited about the ministry. Mm-hmm. They want to be like the catalyst in their church to make it happen there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just blown away. So like you, that this is why I wanted to have you come on and talk about the podcast. Because so often we are inundated by information and we see all of the woes real or not real, all of the woes all around us. And most human beings, I feel like, want to have a positive impact. Most of us, maybe. Maybe that's too rosy. But um, what you're describing is just a very simple way that you can take a positive action and, and produce light. And not even, like, just sending off money somewhere, but, like, the, the, the impacts that you, like I said before, the impacts that you're describing literally are changing and changing catastrophic outcomes from really devastating ongoing cyclical stuff to just a complete and utter change like complete the, the the absolute complete opposite where you're not even just you're not even just avoiding a crisis or taking care of something in the crisis what you've described is in my mind it's literally like providing providing a door for people to walk through that 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 just enriches their life so has the potential to enrich their life so much and change the course of their life where they don't have to be alone or feel alone and boy do i feel like we need that kind of an option right now because we don't know the impacts of 2020 we don't know the impacts of coronavirus and just all the different effects, especially at a, at, at a granular level. We know lots of macro data right now, but we don't know like the micro stuff. But the fact that you can literally step in and you're, you describe like all these different roles, all these different methods, but you guys literally have it all like straightened out. So even if you're not sure which role you can play, it, you can the individual can find whatever way that they're comfortable with with contributing and making a difference. So I just encourage anybody that's listening to this, if just make that step, make, make the phone call, send the email and just see, just see what happens from that small step. Um, because we need more people to take small steps that, that have the potential, like a high level of potential, I would say in this case to, make large ripples of positive effect and positive change. When you, t- when you just kind of casually said these couple things and then it empties the foster care system, like that's a, that's a massive thing and it doesn't take m- more than a couple people making that positive type decision that we described. And that's part of what we've been talking about a lot in the different episodes in this podcast is just making a small step of change that's positive, whether it's just in your own private circle, your own private life, or, you know, impacting your community, which is what this is talking about, positive, you know, community impact. But also, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that it changes you for the better. It's it's probably good to not live in that 
with your head in the sand <clears throat> and maybe you feel, maybe you've even felt like listening to this, that maybe, yeah, your head has been a little bit in the sand and you're just listening to this while you're driving. Um, but so many positive monumentous things come from small beginnings. I think mm-hmm. that's probably a Tolkien line. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that came from my mind just then that's gotta be a Tolkien line or CS Lewis line or something. <laughs> um, anyway, so is there anything else melody that you would like to kind of just say, um, any words of encouragement, any, uh, any kind of maybe, maybe a challenge to issue or anything like that as we get ready to, to close. Well, and first too, I think it'd be really cool to hear your response about how it does help the host family, hmm. how they get to experience growth and even the kids, you know, cause your experience with boys town and your kids, mm-hmm seeing, I guess, a different exposure that young kids can have to someone who's outside their family, but they're watching the restorative power Mm -hmm. of this experience. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because that is a huge part of my testimony from being when we were a a host family and I hadn't come on staff yet, um, is that we hosted all those nights first. And I would say, I mean, within two hours of a child moving into our house, I felt like we, it was a trick, like we were getting a bigger benefit than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the chance to, without like signing your kids up for a course or like having these huge family meetings every night, but just to live a ministry together, mm-hmm. to watch them learn to know, love, be crazy about someone who looked different than them, someone who came from a different background than them, mm-hmm. the chance to learn from my kids how to have compassion. Mm -hmm. Like those things are irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. And I, we haven't hosted for a a few months because I'm getting used to my new job and stuff. (laughs) Um, but I can't wait to host again. I think it has transformed our family for sure. And a couple, like I'll try to keep them brief stories. Um, (laughs) the, the first night that the first girl moved into our home, um, I was talking to my son who was 12 at the time and about, how I wasn't sure how she would sleep because she was used to sleeping in the bed with her mom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we're not going to do that here. We feel like that's not a good boundary. We're going to give her her own room mm-hmm. and her own bed. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was chatting with him about that and he, I looked over and he was tearing up 12 year old boy, preteen boy tearing up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, bud, what's wrong? And he was like, oh, I was just thinking about her mom and how she's used to sleeping every night with her daughter. And tonight she's at her house alone. <laughs> And I was like, so I'm like, cue the waterworks. Like, oh my gosh, like, Lord, that compassion in his heart could only come from you. Like, I didn't train him to say that. Yeah. It's just, it's, there's something really cool about kids' hearts and how naturally they respond. Mm. Um, And the other cool story is there was a a hosting that had been difficult for us with relationship with the mom. It had been going on about six months. We... I felt like there was like a wall between us. We were trying to be compassionate, but we were definitely feeling compassion fatigue. I think she could sense that and was kind of not being very open with us about her life. Hmm. Um, and we had her over to our house one night and I was trying, I had been praying about the time. I was trying to engage in deep conversation, see how she was doing. I'm always looking for a chance to share the gospel. <laughs> and she was just like on her phone, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, like not really engaging with me. And I was just feeling kind of discouraged. Um, and my... Uh, 10 year old daughter was sitting at the table, uh, coloring, um, drawing something on a piece of paper. And it was, um, 
it was February. And so everybody was celebrating Black History Month and they had been talking about it a lot at her school. Mm-hmm. And as we're sitting there talking and I'm like discouraged, it's really just me talking. <laughs> the mom wasn't talking back to me at all. Uh, my daughter, Hope, pushes her picture across the table into the eyesight, like in, in front of the phone <laughs> of the mom. And the picture is a picture of the mom. And it says at the bottom, um, I think we should celebrate blank uh, for Black History Month because she's a hero. And, sh- and so the we, mom, the, she the, named mom, the mom, in that yeah, she said the mom's name. And so we had, t- we talked so much about like how, what courage it takes to um, admit that you need help and what yeah. a huge difference it can make for your family's path. Yeah. Wow. And, and the mom just looks at this picture. I mean, just starts crying and all the walls came down and we had this beautiful conversation after that about how hard her life had been and all these challenges that she had faced that led her to be where she was and how it feels hopeless to be where she is. My kids are able to minister in a way that Jeff and I can't. I mean, like, I don't know that I'd be brave enough to write that even if I thought of it, but it was, it was true to her. She wasn't making anything up. She just, yeah. She thought she was really brave holding her family together. And so she thought she should be celebrated for Black History Month. Absolutely. How old was Hope? She was 10. So just just that kid literally just with some pen and paper just demolished, just demolished, like impenetrable walls. Yeah. That's amazing. That's something that I was, I was having no headway. No. Yeah. You were just running right into the wall. I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I would never take it back in a million years, even knowing some of the hard moments where kids weren't sleeping or we were stressed or we redid our kitchen during one of our hostings and I was feeding all my kids cereal on the floor of the living room. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take any of it back. The impact on our family has been huge and I, I just hope to continue to keep doing it. Caspian, who's 14 now. He's not sure if he wants to get married yet, but he definitely <laughs> wants to adopt a baby someday, wow. even if he's a single dad. And he's asked wow. me many times, like, can I, will they let me adopt? Will they let me do safe families if I'm a single dad? Wow. So there's just some cool things there that I just has that feel ever blessed happened? by. Has anybody ever ended up with an adoption? I mean, has, it, has adoption ever happened as a result? We have had kids not adopted by the host family. We have had, um, we had a baby where... Um, there was an abandonment issue. So the mom wasn't able to come back Mm -hmm. and the host family who had the baby, uh, kept him until an adoptive family was found so that he wouldn't face the foster care system being bounced in and out. So they knew their kids were like pretty grown. They knew they didn't want to adopt him, but they wanted to provide like a loving, safe and stable place. I think it ended up being almost a year. So that was hard. I mean, they had him from newborn. That was very hard to say goodbye, even though it was such a like, an amazing gift that they gave him yeah. because his ability to attach healthily to an adoptive family yes. will be much greater because he yes. attached healthily for this year to them. I totally completely forgot to ask you this. And I've been thinking about this for a little while. So stupid me, somebody right now who is in crisis, who needs the help that you've been describing, how do they get you? Yeah. So they can call our referral line. It's 614-210-3267. And we have had all different types of people. And like I said, it takes a lot of courage to admit, I need help. And it sometimes is that one brave decision that can change the trajectory for your family. And there is no shame in it. I have needed help many times in my life. And I'm very blessed by the people who help me. So, yeah, they can call that number. We have a referral line team. 
that we'll get all of their information Mm -hmm. and we'll find out how we can help them. And help isn't far away then. Nope. We're hoping to plan another chapter this year. That's like a big goal. It's the first time I've said it out loud to like anyone official. Um, in no, in like a surrounding County. Got so it. our, we are, we cover Franklin County and like, we've helped some people outside, like in Delaware and stuff, but, um, we hope to plan another chapter this year. Um, That's a big keeps, deal. and keep spreading out. Some of our rural communities surrounding Franklin are really struggling with the opioid crisis, yep. really struggling during COVID to be isolated. Yep. Um, so yeah, we want to keep, keep spreading the news. So someday we might have another referral line number, but that's the one we have for now. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody's interested in learning about starting their own chapter, like you just said, is it the same thing? Do they just Yeah, contact? just email Phil or I. We, would, we will take the reins and walk through it with them. Very good. So we'll have Melody, Melody's email, Phil's email. We'll put the, web, the, the, the chapter website all in the description for wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, you can obviously go to landslotsroundtable.com, find this episode. I don't know what episode number this is going to be. We, I think we have three unpublished episodes before this one, maybe four. Um, so, uh, yeah, go to landslotsroundtable.com or just look in the description section of this episode to find the links to all of these things. But the, the, the last kind of thing that I wanted to just kind of tack on right there is the idea of no shame. It was really hard for me to have to ask for help because I don't do that well at all. I never have. Mm. But if I hadn't asked for help when I needed to, I can't imagine how difficult it would have been. And I did not need to feel shame, but the shame was right there. So I liked what you said about like there is no shame in asking for help. Um, we all hit the bumps, like you said. Yeah. We all hit it hard. Some of our su- surrounding support structure, I think, is just different mm-hmm. in those situations, but you don't have to do whatever you're doing alone. You can get help, and this is well-established help, and you're not required, doesn't sound like, to do anything to get to that help. Nope. Other than your own choice. Yep, your own choice. Yeah. You have a lot of power over your life, um, and everybody does need help sometimes. And it's, I know it's more comfortable to be the helper than the helpy, mm-hmm. but there's an incredible blessing in that way that you knit into a community when you allow them to serve you. Mm-hmm. And then I know your chance will come where you get to be the one who serves someone else. We point. just had a mom this year. We hosted for her kiddos back in January. She stayed in strong relationship with her host family and some other people she met during the hosting. And she had a friend in crisis and she let them live with her and refer, helped her get a referral through Safe Family so her kids could have somewhere to stay while she found a house to live in. Wow. Um, so literally an immediate, in the same calendar year, paying yeah. it forward. Yeah. If there's any company, like, is there anything where, like, if a company is like, I want to help by employing somebody? Uh, yeah, I would love to talk to them. What I really would love is for somebody to say, hey, I have housing because Mm. there is a crisis in this city. It is really hard to get Section 8 housing. It takes forever. Mm. There's not a lot of people offering affordable housing. There's a lot of like regentrification happening. And so areas that used to be affordable are now like getting fixed up and are really fancy and nice, like Italian village or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, our moms are having a hard time finding housing mm-hmm. and yeah, if you know somebody who wants to like buy a huge building <laughs> and like rent it all out at reasonable cost to our moms, I would love it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's just, I'm just so excited about what you're about this and, and you know, it's, it's, it's more amazing than what I even pictured in my mind before you came on to talk about this. So I just really hope that anybody that's out there listening, 
um, that's been, you know, maybe stirred to some type of action, I think you've pretty well outlined that it's not this steep climb to make some good positive choices and, and all that. So I'm just going to let, just turn it over to you for any closing remarks that you want to make any kind of lasting thing that you're any, any final words that you might have. Sure. This is what I will say. And it piggybacks off what you've been encouraging people to do is you will experience so much more joy, peace, and impact if you just do some tiny thing instead of posting giant things on social media all the time. Yes. Can <laughs> I get go an amen? Do something. Make friends with yes. someone who looks different than you or yeah. help somebody who needs help. Even in like the tiniest way, it will have a much bigger impact than arguing with someone on social media. <laughs> so are you saying that when I copy and paste something that I agree with on social media, it's not having a lasting impact? Probably not. <laughs> No, there, I have posted some good things that um, I took from others who I thought were really wise a couple times, um, mm-hmm. but I don't post very much on social media. And I think that the real work and the real joy comes from getting your hands dirty and getting yeah. involved in people's lives. And it will change your perspective a lot more than reading everyone else's social media mm-hmm. posts will. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And even more than just, yeah, that's, that's a really good word. I think that's a great place to leave it. Do you have any closing remarks that you would like to say? Getting, getting the no. Well, um, thanks everybody for listening. Melody, thanks for coming. Uh, folks, take those actions, get involved. Um, but thanks for listening to the episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Lance. Mm-hmm.